So for those who have been uh, uh, attending our church regularly, you know that we have been, um, you know, at the start of uh, the year, we, we are going through uh, the, uh, the series on Genesis, and we are now on Genesis chapter 3, and as you can see, we are taking our sweet time in really, you know, uh, digging deep into uh, God's Word. And if you are, you know, if you're curious what we have been learning together, uh, you can listen to the, the previous sermons if they are available. Sometimes, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're, they're there, but, uh, uh, you know, that's an opportunity for us to really dig into uh, God's Word. Uh, there's this um, story. Uh, people say that this is an actual story, but this is an unverified uh, story. In the 1900s, uh, the Times, the, the, the newspaper at the time, uh, the Times in London posed uh, a question uh, to several uh, prominent authors. The question was, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And one of those authors that received that question to be I guess the point of uh, sending those letters was that they would post their, their answers on newspaper. One of the authors who received that question was uh, G.K. Chesterton. He's a well-known author, philosopher, uh, uh, religious writer uh, at the time. And from these stories, uh, it was said that he gave the most powerful, simple, very short reply to the question, what's wrong with the world? And I will give his reply later on. So I will not give the spoiler at the moment. I will give that towards the end. His simple, powerful, honest reply. But when we think about that question, what's wrong with the world? I think that's something that we ask ourselves and sometimes we ask uh, publicly, what is going on? What's wrong with this world? When we see horrible news um, on TV, on social media, when we hear of mass shootings, when we hear, you know, horrible, horrible news locally and, and overseas, when we see something terribly evil happening uh, in, in very close to our hearts or outside, when we experience heartbreaks, our question is, what's wrong with this world, right? And, you know, the Bible has an honest, simple, very direct answer to this question. And we can all see that, we can trace that uh, answer uh, back to Genesis 3, which is our, our text today. And if you have a Bible that, that, that's a, that has a heading, it will tell you, it, it's, uh, it will give you the, the heading, the fall of man, or the fall of humanity, or uh, the origin of sin, or things like that. It's, it's generally understood as, as the fall of man, because from this point forward, in your Bibles, you will see the downward spiral of humanity. It doesn't get any better. We, we will see glimpse of, you know, uh, faithfulness with humanity, but predominantly what you will see is really terrible, 
evil happening left and right. And what you will see is Genesis 3 is a stark contrast from what we saw in Genesis 2. We were talking about the good life, right? Last week, we were talking about, wow, this is a beautiful garden that God has graciously provided. You can even say, you know, things have escalated very quickly in just one chapter. It all went downhill. That, that escalated very quickly. And it seems like, you know, the Bible does not waste any time giving an account to describe what's wrong with the world. And that's what we're going to do this Lord's Day. And my simple goal for, for, for this preaching is to help us answer that question, what's wrong with the world, that we have a definitive answer to that. Also to help us see that you and I are great sinners. If that's all you can take from this sermon, I think I've done my role. To see that you are great sinners, that we are all great sinners, but more importantly, to help us see that we have a great Savior. But, you know, while this is a simple, uh, and, and our text is very straightforward, going through it is not really a walk in the garden, so to speak. Uh, that's why, you know, there are so many conversations going on uh, really uh, digging deep into this uh, passage. So uh, I opted to break the sermon into two to give you time to really uh, chew your, 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 your mouth in a way in, in the word, uh, give you time to process it because it's, this is really quite heavy. So I, I would rather do that uh, break this into two sermons to today and next Sunday, as opposed to giving you maybe a, a three-hour, four-hour sermon, uh, all of it today. I'm sure some of you will like that, but uh, our venue will not like that. We're just here until, un, until noon. So today, we're just going to talk about the, the, the two parts of, uh, of this uh, text. We're going to, to discuss the cause of the fall and the consequence of the fall. And next Sunday, we are going to see the second half of the text, and we're studying the judgment because of the fall and God's solution to the fall of man. So again, we're just going to look at two things today, the cause of the fall and the consequence of the fall, as we see in verse 1 to 13. Let's go down uh, uh, into these uh, uh, outlines, all right? What's the cause of the fall. Where does this all uh, start? Well, it, the, the text teaches us there are two, actually two causes of the fall. One is external, the other is internal. Let me explain. Let me read uh, verse 1 and 2 again. Now the serpent, and I'm reading from another version, a Christian Standard Bible. Now the serpent was the most cunning or crafty in all of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. You know, suddenly we are introduced to a 
character in the garden that seems quite odd. And the fact that it's quite odd, some might think that this is not actually happening. Because there's a serpent speaking to the woman. And how the serpent was described, for me, it implies that there were circumstances that happened not mentioned in the story. There were things in the background that was not written. Our text does not explain why the serpent is speaking. Our text does not say why is he there to begin with and why is he the cunning and crafty among all the wild beasts. But if we, if we just look at this text, we don't have an answer to that. But we, when we look at the whole Bible, in fact, towards the end of the Bible, we see that this serpent, we know that this serpent is, to be, is the incarnation of the devil or Satan. We see that in Revelations 12, Revelations 20. And so we have here the devil present in the garden. We have Satan present in the garden. And this implies that prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, there was an actual fall prior to that. The fall of humanity was preceded by the falling out of another created being. And that's, what we, that's why we call, you know, fallen angels. There were fallen angels and there were, there were fallen humanity. We don't see that in, the, in this immediate text, but that's how we understand the whole grand story uh, of the Bible. So essentially it means, you know, the, again, the fall of humanity was preceded by the fall of an angel, and with him, a host of angels. And, and Satan wants to bring the whole creation along with his fall. And strategically, he tries to do that, to bring all of this down. And he wants to target God's image bearers. That was very strategic. And how does he do it? He attacks the word of God. He plants seeds of doubt against the instruction of God. You know, his, the, the serpent's question to the woman, did God really say that you cannot eat so-and-so? So that created some confusion with the woman. And so, you know, the woman just uh, rehearsed how he heard and maybe understood uh, the instruction but look at the, the response. Well, God said you must not eat or touch it or you will die. You see, there's a, uh, a confusion already. God did not even say you cannot touch it. But he, that the woman is now adding in the instruction. And the serpent does not just plant seeds of doubt. The serpent also distorts the instruction of God. The serpent says, no. You will not certainly die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, now the serpent uh, asserts that God was not really telling the truth. He, he is saying, you know what? God lied to you. He is holding something back from you. This good God 
is withholding something good from you. He's not really a benevolent God. He's actually a cunning God. He's hiding something from you that's supposed to be good for you. You know, from the time of Adam and Eve until now, this has been the strategy of the devil. To cause people to sin by undermining the word of God. It has always been like that. That is the external uh, cause of uh, the fall of humanity. But, you know, Satan is merely an external cause to the fall of humanity. He can tempt, but he cannot coerce anyone to sin. Meaning, the ultimate responsibility is still with the woman and with the man. It's like what uh, uh, the, one of the Puritan, um, one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, uh, said: Satan was only a suitor to woo, and not a king to compel. He can tempt us, but not force us to sin. And that's why there's another cause of the fall, and that's an internal cause. We see that in the text as well. Verse 6, let me read. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So, yung, yung, verse, uh, yung first part of verse 6 is, is really what's happening uh, within her. But it did not stop from her desire. It led to an act. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. You know, from the urging of the serpent, the woman exposes her internal dilemma. She turns her gaze to the tree and forgets what God has instructed them. Now, this tree is more desirable than God. This, this fruit is more desirable than the one who created the tree. And Adam also seemed to have forgotten his calling in the garden. Do you see in the text, he was there the whole time. He was there the whole time. This, in, this interaction was happening right before his eyes. And he did not say or do anything. If, if we think, if we read uh, these things, uh, this account, we might think, ah, it's really the, the, the fault of, of Eve that we have all this mess. Adam was there. He didn't do anything. And as we have learned from last week, he is the keeper of the garden. He is the guardian. He is responsible for what God has given to him, including his wife. He could have intervened. He could have stopped the situation from escalating. As the general manager of the garden, he has the authority to cast the serpent away because that is the instruction of God. But he chose to keep silent. Before eating the, the fruit, his sin 
was not to fulfill his role. Adam failed to fulfill his duties in the garden. He, fulfilled to, uh, he failed to fulfill his duties for his wife. He failed, to, uh, his, he failed his duties given by God. And, and his wife also failed by making a created thing more desirable than the creator himself. You see that line? It is desirable. It was good for food and delightful to look at. It's getting her affection already. You know, friends, this is the internal cause of the fall of humanity. We cannot pin it all to Satan. When we, when we, when we sin, when we fall into a sinful behavior or when we fall into sinful pattern, we cannot always pin the, the blame to, well, you know, Satan is doing these things to me. There's an internal cause of the fallenness of man. And it was through Adam and Eve's intent, neglect, and acting on it that brought sin to enter into the world. So let me just give a, a quick sidebar. You know, sin is not just what when you're doing something or not doing something. We see here that the sinful nature of man is both the intent and the action, right? Sometimes we make a distinct, uh, we distinguish, you know, the intent to be uh, neutral and my action is, you know, what, what could be sinful. But here we see both the intent and the action could, could be sinful. And it is here that we see how sin entered into the world. And, and Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, let me read Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. You know, it's as if Paul is saying, you know, we're all culpable because Adam and Eve were our representatives. We're there. We're, we're, we're part of the problem. You know, we, because we are so familiar with, with this story, because we read this, because we see this sometimes uh, distorted in Hollywood stories, in movies, you know, there's a tendency that we might take this for granted. You know, we, we neglect the important implication of, of this account. That's why, you know, there will be some objections like, you know, there's a disparity between how God is responding to, to this uh, sin and how, you know, really the, the gravity of sin. It's really not harmless, right? It's really harmless. I mean, they just ate the uh, 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 fruit, how bad is that? You know, we, we minimize the effect of this situation. In fact, you know, some of you are, I, I mentioned this already many, many months ago. Uh, this was posed um, as a question in one of the Ligonier conferences. So if you search on YouTube, uh, RC Sproul, what's wrong with you people? Uh, you will see how, you know, people have this notion that the punishment was so severe 
for such a small sin. And we need to correct that. We need to correct that understanding. And there are, you know, I can think of two ways to think little of this situation. Number one, we take for granted the weight of God's instruction. We take for granted the weight of God's instruction. Friends, often sin abounds in a situation where doubt is cast on the word of God. And when there is distortion on the word of God, the fertile soil for sin, and listen to this, the fertile soil for sin is the doubting, the discrediting, and the distortion of God's word. This is not merely like an oops moment, oops, sorry. It's not like that. We must understand that what Adam and Eve did, their sin, is an attack on God's sovereignty. It was an attack on his authority. They were not just taking a bite off a fruit that seemed good, they were defying the command of the one who gave breath to them, who made them this garden, who provided for them. And to call it rebellion is not severe. To call this act rebellion is an accurate description. And Mark Jones, in, in, in his book, Knowing Sin, he talked about how every sin is a desire to be like God. We are defying the instruction of God. We are saying, God, I know better than you, so I'm doing this. So we take for granted the weight of God's instruction. And, you know, friends, I pray that the Lord will be merciful to us when we take that for granted. And number two, we not only take for granted the weight of God's instruction, we often underestimate the influence of sin, the power of sin in our lives. You know, we think Adam and Eve were weak people disobeying God. Uh, and, and if we were in the situation, you know, we look at Adam, we look at Eve, at Eve and we say, mahinang nila lang. <laughs> Weak. We could have done better. I would have done better than Adam. I would have done better than Eve. I know better. Really? Let's think about it. From the moment we, when we were born, we are surrounded by the effects of sin. We are born in sin, as Psalm 51 tells us. It has affected us since day one. We partake of the brokenness of the world before we could even walk or say our first words. Daily, we are bombarded with influences that tempt us to sin. Adam and Eve were surrounded by the overwhelming goodness of God. And yet, they sinned against God. And we think we could have done better. 
Adam and Eve at best were our representatives to follow God. And in that perfect scenario, they failed. And we think that we could do better. Make no mistakes, friends. Adam and Eve sinned even under the best conditions. So don't think that all you need is a perfect, stress-free environment to win your battle against sin. Yes, reducing you know, uh, sinful influences over your lives, like you know, if you're reducing things that, are, that will cause you to sin are, are good things, they will definitely help. But you can never win the battle against sin by sheer willpower. Let me repeat that. You can never win the battle against sin by your sheer willpower. You need, we need supernatural help. Because the problem, as we said, is a powerful external force, Satan. By the way, if you think you're a hardworking Christian, Satan is working harder than you to make you fall into sin. You cannot outwork Satan. So if the problem is coming from an external powerful force and also internal deeply uh, insidious cause, the solution cannot be coming from within. It should be coming from something outside of us. We call that something alien outside of us. And so, as we seriously consider the, the cause of sin, how powerful it is, the, 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 sin, uh, the influence of sin over us, we need to see how it is resulting on, on brokenness in our world. And that's where we come into our second point, the consequence of the fall that we see in Adam and Eve. What's the consequence of the fall? But let me first ask, what did God say will happen if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What did God say will happen? They will surely die. So the consequence of the fall should be death. But Adam and Eve did not die, right? They did not just fall down and turn into dust, right? Seems like they continued living, right? Was God wrong? Was God just scaring them away? Was God like a parent who says, you know, if you don't behave, the, the plane will fall. <laughs> Was God just making an extreme example of what's going on? They did not die. So was God wrong? Was God lying? Obviously not. Sure, they did not die instantly, but, they, but death became a certainty. That's what this means, that they will surely die. Certainty of death. 
and death was not part of the created order. But now, death becomes a reality. Sooner or later, you will die. And we have a whole chapter in Genesis, and we'll get to that in the future, that each and every one dies. Whether now or later, everybody dies. So God was right. They will surely die. But aside from physical death, there's another much more serious kind of death happening here. Let me explain. I'll, I'll read verse 7. Here's the result after eating the tree, after eating the fruit of the tree. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You know, remember nakedness, we talked about this a little bit last week. You know, in the context of intimate fellowship between Adam and Eve, it was in, nakedness was not evil, right? It was good. It was an indicator of their innocence. It was an indicator of their vulnerability. It was an indicator of their happiness. They don't care about clothes. They were happy in the garden that God has provided for them. It was good. It was very good. But in this case, after the fall, Adam and Eve saw nakedness as something bad. So intimacy becomes now influenced by malice. So they tried to cover it up. And that's where, you know, we have this term, no, let's do a cover-up. Always, when we say cover-up, it's in the context of sin, covering, uh, doing something bad to cover something bad, right? That's what a cover-up normally means. And that's what happens when we, when we sin. Very rarely does sin happen, one sin happen exclusively. When one sins, it's because there was sinful intent. And when sin happens, there's an act that's also sinful. There's a ripple effect of sin happening in a person's life. And that's what we see happening here. So the intimacy, the, the vulnerability, the innocence between man and woman is becoming distorted. And they were hiding their nakedness from one another. And it's get, it, it gets worse. They were hiding from God. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. They hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. They were hiding from the one who made them. And we, we see here a very interesting interaction. So the Lord God called out to the man as he was walking in the garden, and he said to him, where are you? Where are you? And this, by the way, is the first question that God gave in the Bible. Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. So Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Now there's fear for himself. 
because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave me. God, this is your fault. You gave me a woman and he sinned. That's why I'm hiding. And she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. And so the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. In other words, in this interaction, what they were saying, God, I'm not the perpetrator here. I'm the victim. I'm the victim. I'm in this situation because someone else sinned. Eve said, I'm in this situation because someone deceived me. You know, that's what sin does. It separates us from one another. It separates us from God. It blinds us from our true condition. And we think that it's not our fault. Friends, this is much more serious than physical death because this illustrates what spiritual death looks like. We are separated from one another and you know, like we have talked about, being an image bearer is to relate with one another. And we see that being distorted now, being broken now. And, you know, being an image bearer, we're connected with the one who made us in a covenant relationship. And now we're hiding. We're separated from the one who created us. This is spiritual death. And we, and we look at ourselves and we have a distorted view of, of, of the truth. And they thought that, you know, it, eating from the tree will make them wise. It looks like having that capacity for moral judgment just distorted their view of what is right and wrong. On the day Adam and Eve took what was prohibited from them, Sin entered the world, and death, both physical and spiritual, became a certainty. And this is the world we live in now, a world full of sin and its all complexities, and death and its all certainty for each and every one of us. You know, I hope we feel the weight of this problem. This is why, you know, Genesis 2 is such a stark contrast with this, and we need to see them in, you know, in together to really have a good grasp of what the Bible is teaching us. We need to feel the weight of this problem. Because as we reflect on what sin is and what sin does, we really understand our miserable state apart from God. And in this misery, we even see more clearly the beauty of God's grace to shine through. Mark Jones, again, uh, in his book, Knowing Sin, said, some of the great displays of 
both God's character and His grace are revealed in the context of sin. We see the grace of God really shine through in the context of great sin. And we see that in our text today. Where do we see that? You know, on the very moment Adam sinned, God came looking for him. God was looking for him. And for the first time, God asked a question. What's that question? Where are you? Wait, why is God asking where are you? Isn't he omniscient? He knows everything. Why is God asking a question? Does he not know where Adam was? Was the tree so big that God cannot see it? Was the sin so big that it, it, it made God powerless against it? Why did God ask Adam, where are you? If he knows everything. Well, God was asking Adam, where are you? For his benefit. For his benefit. In fact, all of God's question to them were an opportunity for them to come clean. To come out. When God said, where are you? Adam had an opportunity. Here I am, Lord. I have sinned. He could have said, Lord, I disobeyed you. I made this. The woman could have said, I was deceived and I was desiring for something that you have uh, forbidden. I have sinned. Those questions were an opportunity for confession. It was an opportunity to come clean. When G.K. Chesterton responded to that question, what is wrong with the world? In the story it says, he responded with this reply, Dear sirs, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. And isn't that what Christian life is essentially all about? To recognize our misery, to confess our sin, to own up to it. You know, Christianity is not about, you know, I can make this on my own. It's to confess to the Lord that we have failed miserably. Just, that just like Adam and Eve under the best conditions, we will disobey. And that we need a Savior out of the misery that we have created for ourselves. Friends, those who are marred by sin do not come looking for God. But the good news is God himself comes to look for those who are marred by sin. And isn't that the whole mission of Jesus Christ? He made this claim about himself. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, Christ is the true seeker in the church. He is the true seeker in the church. He is the one looking for miserable people like you and me. He is the one looking for Adam and Eve hiding in the trees in their shame and in their nakedness. And because it is God who comes looking and it is by his grace that he calls us, 
Friends, we can come out of hiding. We can come clean. In Christ, there is no need to hide. And this is the beauty of God's grace in the fallenness of humanity. We have, in Christ, an opportunity to confess. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we feel the weight of what's wrong with the world, we confess, I am, we are, we are what's wrong with the world. We cause this, we are miserable because of this. We are both victims and perpetrators of the mess that we are in. Just like Adam and Eve, we see how we can fail miserably in the midst of your goodness and graciousness to us. And we see a glimpse of hope here in the story, God, as you come looking for us, as we hide in our self-righteousness, as we hide in our works of good, goodness that we think are good enough. Lord, we come before you naked and empty and miserable. Grant us the courage to come out, to come clean, to confess and say that we are what's wrong with the world. But Lord, we find hope not in our neediness. We find hope in our Savior and in him we see the solution for what's wrong with this world. In Christ, we stand, and in him, we find our hope. In his name we pray, amen.